The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Ruth 4, 11 through 15. All the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar born to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I'm a Big University of Michigan football fan. I see Alan excited out there. He, too, is one of the few chosen like me. So it's been a good couple of weeks for us. We, we beat our rival. We won a conference championship. We're going to college football playoffs. But I didn't say that just to brag. I say there's a point to this because it's interesting to me how the coverage has been on the football team this year. Both on TV and in print, football commentators are calling it a season of redemption for Michigan, and particularly for their coach, Jim Harbaugh. Harbaugh's been the coach for six years. He never beat his rival, Ohio State Buckeyes, until this year. That said, where's Jason Norton? I'm on to say that publicly. He's covering his face. He's, he's told me every year, I think for the last six years, we had it. Anyway, but after the game, here's what happened. All these writers, all these, these commentators kept talking about how Harbaugh redeemed himself with the win. That was the phrase they used. And these words, redeemed and redemption, they're often used in sports, in politics, and in sort of other areas of our culture to describe someone who's turned things around. So someone who was losing in some way or was failing in some way, and they've, they've turned their loss into a win or their failure into success. These commentators say, well, they've redeemed themselves. And turning things around is certainly one aspect of redemption, but it really misses the heart of the term. And all these stories about redemption, the, the focus on the choices the coach or the person made to redeem himself. And so in our cultural use of redemption, it's seen as something a person accomplishes. Redemption is a, a personal achievement that's unlocked by hard work and effort. But true redemption is not something you achieve on your own. True redemption, the kind of redemption that we all need and long for, the kind of redemption which fills the pages of the Bible, is not achieved by working harder or being smarter. Redemption is about God's grace, not our effort. So we're going to continue in the story of Ruth this morning. And as we do, we'll see in these chapters that the focus shifts from Naomi, her mother-in-law, to Ruth. And really, a question about redemption is raised right away. And here's the question. Is there someone who can redeem Ruth to to pay to bring her out of, of poverty and hopelessness and isolation? 
So this story revolves around a cultural practice called a kinsman redeemer, or here in the CSB it's translated a family redeemer. This is a concept that's closely tied to something we've studied the last couple weeks, particularly a few weeks ago in the story of Judah and Tamar. If you remember in that story, when Judah's husband died, his single brother was supposed to marry her, and then when he had a child, a son, that son would carry on the the dead husband's name, and then any other sons would, would sort of carry on their father's name. So he would, the idea is that this brother would redeem his brother's line, redeem it from ending, just sort of it being done, it being over, it's gone now. He would redeem this line by producing an heir in his brother's name. That heir would sort of carry on the family name and legacy and have their land and possessions. But in Ruth's case, we, we know this, there was no brother to, to carry on the the family name because both her husband and her husband's brother has died. And so that's why this question here in the story is, is there anyone? Is there anyone who can redeem her? Is there anyone who can keep the husband's line going or is it just doomed to end? This story of Ruth is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and his church. Because like Ruth in the opening chapter, we are poor and needy with little future and no hope. And in love, Jesus redeems his church from a life of hopeless poverty, from an unpayable debt to sin. And he brings his people into an everlasting, intimate relationship with him. So as we work through chapters 2 through 4 of Ruth this morning, here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep a question sort of in the back of your mind. Okay, so as we look at this, sort of just keep this question there and sort of keep thinking about it, keep asking it. Here's the question. How does this story of redemption picture God's grace to us through Jesus Christ? How does this story of redemption that we're going to look at picture God's grace to us Christians through Jesus Christ? So when we left off last week, Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law, they had just journeyed from Moab to her city, the town she grew up in, that Naomi had, this town of Bethlehem. And from this point forward, the story focuses on redemption. Who can redeem Ruth from poverty and provide a future for her? Each chapter here provides a filter for us. Okay, this is how we're going to look at it. Each chapter sort of provides this filter to look at redemption sort of in a little different part, to bring out a little different aspect of redemption. Each chapter helps us understand more about how Christ has redeemed us, his church, his bride. He's redeemed us from a hopeless future to a a beautiful inheritance. So here's what we see. Here's the filter of chapter two. We see redemption and God's favor. Redemption in God's favor. Now, this chapter begins with a, a, some foreshadowing. So it introduces us right off the bat to this man named Boaz, who happens to be a relative of Naomi's dead husband, something that will keep being emphasized about him. And we, it emphasizes this because we've got to remember something that Naomi said to Ruth in chapter 1. So if you remember, Naomi's leaving. She's leaving Moab. Her, her husband's died. Her sons have died. She's leaving, and she's got these two daughters-in-law that are coming with her. And she says, no, just stay there. Go back to your mother's house. They'll find you a husband. And she says this because there's no one left in, in my family line. No one who, who can marry you and provide a home and a future for you. No one who can raise up the family line through you. Well, this foreshadowing here in verse 1 it's not intended to be subtle, right? It's not like sort of a, a cliffhanger, a mystery story, wondering what, what could possibly happen. It's, it's really pretty blunt. It's saying right off the bat, hey, there is a guy who can act as a kinsman redeemer, a guy who, who is a great high character who happens to be a relative of Elimelech. So look at verse 1. 
Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. So someone responds to what Naomi said. He was a prominent man of noble character, and I emphasize it here again, from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Now, interesting, the same phrase, man of noble character, was used of Gideon in Judges 6. And so some believe Boaz may have served with Gideon in some of the battles fought against the Midianites. But either way, we're introduced to this man, this man of noble character, Boaz, for a reason. But as soon as we're introduced to him, the focus shifts away from him and back to Ruth and Naomi. And in verse 2, Ruth asks a question that really becomes the key to understanding the message of the book. So she says to Naomi, is it okay if I go to a nearby barley field and basically try to pick up scraps and I can bring them back and, and this will provide food for us? Right? This is how desperate and destitute they are. It's harvest time. When they go into the field to harvest, like they can't get everything. There are scraps. Is it okay if I go into this field and just find these scraps and maybe these scraps will be enough for us to make it through the winter? Right? She understands the helpless position. But here's... Here's where her hope is. Look at verse 2. Her hope isn't ultimately in finding the scraps. Her hope is that she will find someone with whom she can have favor. Like she's, she knows accurately her condition. We're hopeless. We have no means of support. We have no ability to change it. I need to go somewhere and maybe I'll find favor from someone. And we begin to see how her desire for favor is rewarded in verse 3. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Our English translations have trouble bringing it out, but you could translate verse 3 as, she chanced to chance upon a field. And she chanced to chance upon a field, or maybe she happened to happen upon a field. It's, it's a deliberate play on words to show us that God was in his sovereignty, orchestrating all of the details of her life. So what appeared to be random or appeared to be chance was actually God's favor in leading her to this man of noble character who just so happens to be related to her husband, a potential candidate for kinsman redeemer. The rest of chapter 2 just gives all the details about how Ruth finds Boaz's favor. So in verse 4, we learn that Boaz was the kind of guy who greeted those who worked for him every day with a blessing from the Lord. He was just that kind of guy who genuinely cared for those who worked under him. We know he follows the law of Moses because in the law of Moses, those who own fields are told this, that they can't glean the corners of the field because they need to leave the corners for those who are poor. This is God's care for those in poverty. He basically tells those who have land to care for those without land by by leaving sort of the corners of their field ungleaned so that poor people could come in and, and, and get some harvest for themselves. And we know that Boaz does that. In verse 8, we see he invites Ruth to glean with the young woman, the young women who are workers of his. So he In a sense, he says, don't even worry about the corners of the field. Just work alongside my workers. Verse 9, he says, I've told the men they better not take advantage of you. So here she is. She's a young woman. She's widowed. She's a foreigner. It would have been very easy in that culture for someone to take advantage of her because she had no recourse. There's really no, very little that she could have done if someone had had taken advantage of her. And Baboy is like, "I've, I've, I've warned them, do not, do not touch you. Verse 14, she's included at lunchtime. 
when all the, ga- the workers are gathered to eat. This is extremely unusual for a woman, particularly a foreign woman, to be invited to sit down with the workers. This level of hospitality is strange to include her. Verses 15 through 17, he actually instructs his workers to drop extra grain so that she has more to pick up. I mean, think about this. This man is upstanding character. He brings his workers to them. He treats them well, and he says, listen, I need you for a period of time to do a bad job. I mean, what kind of boss says that? Usually a boss is like, hey, get as much as you can. Don't waste any. Right? This, is how, this is how you achieve a successful harvest. And he's like, actually, just you can, you can do a poor job for a while so that she has plenty to take home to her mother-in-law. And then maybe the most shocking thing in verse 9, he welcomes her to drink from the worker's water supply when she gets thirsty. So the well would have probably been, the town was often built around a well, So it's in the center of town. At the start of the day, the workers fill up their jars, their jugs of water. They bring it out, set them beside the field. So while they're working, they don't have to go back into town. They can just go over and get a drink. But to invite her to drink from this, this is unusual. And here's why we should know this. Because there's a story in Jesus' life when he goes to a well. And there at a well is a foreign woman who no longer has a husband. And Jesus says to her, can you give me something to drink? And she responds in shock. And she basically says, why would you, a Jewish man, ask me, this, a foreign woman, for a drink? Because you, you wouldn't even touch the, the, the jar if it came from me. Yet you're willing to drink, put your lips on this jar. This is shocking that Jesus would, would care for her in this way. And we're supposed to see this same type of care in Boaz for Ruth. Ruth, she understands how unusual his level of kindness is to her. She says in verse 10, like, why are you doing this? I'm a foreigner. She calls herself this. This is her surprise. Because in the eyes of society, she deserves nothing. But she, for reasons unknown to her, has found favor from Boaz. In fact, twice she says to him, once in the form of a question, you can almost hear the surprise in her voice. She says, why have I found favor in your eyes? Verse 10 and verse 13. So here she is. The story begins. She's out looking for favor from someone. And that someone ends up being Boaz. Okay, but the author of the story doesn't want us to see that the ultimate difference is Boaz's favor, though it's significant. Because notice what, what he says, or what Naomi says when Ruth returns. In fact, Ruth returns with so much food that those who write upon the Old Testament they're not quite sure how to interpret how much food it appears she has. Because she would have had to have been like a world's strongest man level person to get what appears to be this much grain back. So we're not sure how to picture Ruth. She's not drawn with huge muscles, you know, in the kids' stories. But she has this much grain. Look at what Naomi says to her when she returns. Where did you gather barley today? Like, <laughs> she comes dragging in so much. She expected scraps. She's got all this. Where did you work? She says in verse 19. Then before he, she, Ruth can even answer, she's like, may the Lord bless the person who noticed you. Like, this is unusual. So Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she had worked with and said, the name of the man I work with today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. And Naomi continued, this man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. So the, Naomi asked the Lord to bless Boaz for what he has done. But she understands the source of Boaz's kindness in verse 20. 
Now, do you remember from last week how Naomi felt about God when she left Moab and returned to Bethlehem? Here's what she said. Don't call me pleasant. That's Naomi. Call me bitter. Why? Because God's hand is against me. Like God has not been helping me or supporting me. God has turned against me. So call me a bitter, old, empty woman. Those are her words. She thought God had forgotten her and abandoned her. And now she says this in verse 20. This is key. The he in verse 20 is not Boaz. It's God. He has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Here is Naomi said, in this act of kindness from Boaz, I see the kindness of God. Ruth left the house that morning looking for someone to show her favor. And the someone is not ultimately Boaz, but it's God. God shows her kindness. Now that's the exact word we saw in the account, the story of Rahab. God's kindness through the spies. It's a word that means steadfast or committed love. That God's loving kindness led Ruth to that field. God's loving kindness filled Boaz's heart with compassion for her. God's loving kindness sent her back to Naomi with hands overflowing with grain. And then for the next two months, Ruth returns to that field each day to gather more grain under the watchful eye and the loving kindness, the gracious favor of both Boaz and God. And so the first filter through which we're supposed to see the story is, is, is this sort of an understand redemption is God's favor. So as Ruth's story moves from this fearful, scary future to one now that is hopeful and, and flourishing, we see that it's all because of God's favor. That redemption is his idea, it's his design, and he is orchestrating every single detail in the story to redeem her. Now here's the second filter. We find it in chapter 3. It's redemption and human effort. Okay, so how does chapter 2 end? It ends with Ruth working hard in the field. In fact, we're told earlier in chapter 2, she doesn't even take breaks. Like, she just keeps going. She's a hard worker. She's a hard worker who has not yet experienced redemption. I think here maybe is a picture of how redemption is often viewed. It's assumed that we secure our future primarily through our own diligence. But Ruth is diligent. But in spite of her diligence, she still has the same problem that existed when the book began. And Naomi brings it up in verse 1. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? So Naomi wants Ruth to find a place of rest. Now this is more than simply physical rest or a break from physical labor. That's a part of it. She's talking about a place of refreshment, a place of security, a place of belonging. And so Ruth has been laboring under the hot sun day after day after day. And in spite of all of her effort and work and labor, she has not been able to secure for herself a future. Now, all of us long for rest, whether it's physical or mental, emotional, spiritual. We're looking for that place and time when all of the striving is over, when we're not constantly worried about whether we measure up or the things we've failed to accomplish, 
the rest God prepared for Adam and Eve in the garden. This was, it was not primarily physical rest, though that's a piece of it. It was rest from toil and trouble and weariness and exhaustion and, and uncertainty. That rest has been elusive ever since Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the garden. Now Israel, we've talked about this the last few weeks, they hope to find that type of rest in this land But because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience, their foolishness, this rest was always fleeting. I think that most of us hope that rest can be found just over the next hill. We're like travelers on the interstate with an empty fuel gauge, hoping there's an exit just around the bend. So, the right job or graduation from college, high school. When the baby gets here, Christmas vacation, retirement, like that's that's when I'll find it. Marriage, grandkids, it has to be grandkids. Right? These, These are the exits that we hope will finally bring us rest. But there is no rest without redemption. Naomi understands that for Ruth to find rest, she must first be redeemed, and redemption doesn't come from working out in a field. So Naomi comes up with a plan. She sells Ruth to change out of her garments of mourning. This is something that widows would wear for an extended period of time after their husbands died. Sometimes they'd wear it all the way up to their death. And in here there's, there's some hints, some, some callbacks from the story of Tamar But she says, change out of these garments of mourning, your sort of widow's clothes, and go down to where Boaz is threshing or taking care of the grain that they brought from the field. Then she says in verse 3 and 4, here's what you need to do. When he falls asleep, pull the the blankets off his feet, lay down next to him. So in verses 5 through 7, as weird as this sounds, Naomi's like, or Ruth is like, okay, I'll go do it. So she lays down next to him, and at some point in the middle of the night, he wakes up with cold feet. And all of a sudden, to his surprise, someone's laying there next to him. Right? This is, this is intended to be surprising. Like, what? Because this happens, he looks, he's like, who are you? Probably was thinking, how did you get here? Like, what's going on? And here's what Ruth does. She asks him to redeem her. She doesn't bargain with him, coerce him manipulate him. Some have suggested there's something sexual going on here. It's not the case at all. She doesn't offer him anything. She doesn't commit to being the best wife. She doesn't commit to working really, really hard. She asks. That's it. Nothing more. She knows here he is. He has the position and power to do what she needs but cannot do herself. And so she asks, verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Now, chapter 2, when Boaz and Ruth spoke, Boaz said something to Ruth. He said, in your coming to Bethlehem, coming from Moab to Israel, God has taken you under his wing. So it's like a mother hen. He He sort of brought you as one of his chicks under his wing where you can find comfort and safety. And so here, Ruth, she uses that same language. 
because she sees Boaz as God's instrument of safety for her. I think here we see Ruth's faith. She believes that God has done exactly what Boaz has said, that God has brought her under his wing. And the way he's doing this is by bringing her to Boaz. And so she asks in faith for God's redemption to come through this man who has shown himself faithful to God. Now, I think what happens next is vitally important. He, he's honored by her request, but he says there's one problem. There's someone who's more closely related to your dead husband than I am. And so like, he actually has to either waive this or, or do something about this first. And so Boaz is going to have to figure this out in the morning. But he says this to her, and I, I want you to see the beauty of this. Verse 13, here's what he says. Lie down until morning. So the woman who needs rest but cannot achieve it on her own, the woman who has labored for weeks in the field, the woman in in need of redemption is invited to lay down and rest. Now that she has asked Boaz to redeem her, all she needs to do is rest. He will take care of the rest. So later that morning, she gets up, she returns home to Naomi and tells her all that has happened. And notice what Naomi says in verse 18. My daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he, Boaz, won't rest until he resolves this today. Boaz won't rest until Ruth is redeemed. So I just, I just want you to think about the chain of events in this passage. Ruth is working hard, but cannot find rest She has no power to provide rest for herself, so she goes to the one person with the power and desire to redeem her and give her rest, and he has her lie down and rest at his feet until he can get up and will not rest until her redemption is complete. I mean, brothers and sisters, can you not see Jesus here? Can you not see Jesus in Boaz's willingness to rescue his bride. You see in Boaz the effort of Jesus that he will accomplish his work. He will finish it so we can find rest. Do you see in Boaz the invitation of Jesus who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Lie down here. I'll take care of it. Now throughout the story, We have been told and shown over and over how noble Ruth is. In fact, this is what Boaz says to her in verse 11. He says, listen, Ruth, the whole town already knows. She's only been there a few weeks, maybe maybe a couple months. But the whole town already knows you are a woman of noble character. But in spite of her reputation, her kindness, her dependability, she still needs someone to redeem her. Her effort great though it was, could not produce what she needed. She needed only to ask the right person to intercede on her behalf. Friend, your effort cannot bring you the rest you need. Your willpower, your choices, your hard work, all of this is insufficient to redeem you from the sinful choices and bad decisions you have made. But there is one who is able to intercede for you And all you have to do is ask. Like he has done the work you cannot do so that you can enjoy the rest you need. Right? Only in Jesus Christ 
and we find redemption and rest. So in chapter 2, we see redemption and God's favor. That is all of God's grace. God is behind it all. In chapter 3, we see redemption and human effort that no amount of work we do can produce the rest we need. And now here in chapter 4, here's the last filter. Redemption and effective sacrifice. So the chapter begins with Boaz. He rushes off to the gates of the city. Now the gates were the courtrooms of that time. This is where business was done. And so it just happens, again, that the closer relative, he just happens to be walking by when Boaz gets there. Again, we're supposed to see God at work in all the details. So Boaz grabs this closer relative. He grabs the elders of the town. He sits down and says, there's something that must be decided. There's some legal work that needs, to be, that needs to be settled this morning. So apparently Naomi's husband, Elimelech, before he moved the family to Moab, sold their family land. Now the laws in Israel are designed to preserve family land and line and name and reputation and legacy. This is what we've seen a lot in the last few weeks. And because of that, there's an opportunity for a relative to acquire this land that used to belong to Elimelech, and by requiring it, it actually sort of brings it back to the family and tribe. And so Boaz, in verses 2 through 4, he just lays this out. And the closer relative, he jumps all over it. Like before Boaz even finishes, you get the sense he's like, yep, I'll do it. I'd like that land. Like, of course he would. Who wouldn't want good land at a good price? And Boaz carefully cleverly. He says, wait, there's, there's one more thing, that if you buy, redeem Elimelech's land, you also redeem Elimelech's daughter-in-law, and he calls her the Moabitess. Just don't forget where she's from, Ruth. As quickly as he says yes, the relative reverses course in verse 6. Like as quickly as he says, yes, I'll do it, he says, boys, why don't you do it? I think I'll pass. And, he, and here's why. We've got, we got to ask Why? And here's the answer, because there was a cost to it. Gaining the land, that's a good business decision. Redeeming a Moabite widow, raising up a son under a different person's name, giving him an inheritance out of what you've earned, like that requires a sacrifice he's unwilling to make. But Boaz is willing to make it. It says in verse 9 and 10, he stands up in front of all the people and he calls them as witnesses. He says, listen, today is the day that I'm not only going to redeem this land, but I'm going to marry Ruth. And I'm going to raise up a son under Elimelech's name. I'm going to give him an inheritance. And we see in Boaz this man who's willing to sacrifice in order to redeem Ruth from a hopeless and doomed future. Now, three things had to be true for Boaz to redeem Ruth. He had to be a relative. He had to have resources. And he had to be willing to pay the cost. And we see in Boaz's actions, we see a prototype of the Messiah. That he had to be a relative. This is why Jesus, we celebrate the incarnation where God sends his own son in the likeness of a human baby as a human being. Because only as a human being is he able to suffer and die to save us. That Christ had to be related to us. But he also had to have resources to do this. And we know this, right? That, that Jesus, he left heaven. He humbles himself. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be held on to. But beyond that, we're told this by the writer of Hebrews, that Jesus came and he had the power of an indestructible life. In other words, the righteousness of Jesus was perfect. And so he had the ability to pay what you and I cannot pay through our righteousness and effort. Jesus had the resources to purchase our redemption. But then finally, he had to be willing to make that sacrifice. 
where he had to humble himself to death, even the death on a cross. Jesus had to pay for our freedom and our future with the cost of his life, and he does it. And as the story wraps up, we see that Boaz's sacrifice was effective, that he accomplished exactly what he intended to do that day. And the effect of his sacrifice was life and salvation for Ruth and Naomi. Verse 13 says, Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He slept with her. The Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. And the women there of Bethlehem said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became a mother to him. Do you remember what Naomi said in chapter 1? She said, I left full, and I came back empty. When God redeems a person, he not only restores what they lost, he fills them in ways they could not even have dreamed. God's redemption of Naomi. It's described here in such powerful ways. She has two sons that die, and she gains back seven sons. Seven there being the sense of, of a complete, a perfect, a whole family. Like, God gives her life and hope and a future to a woman who thought all was lost. A woman who left empty and bitter now has received the grace of God in ways that she could never have imagined. Ruth and Boaz are added to the line of the Messiah, the ongoing story of God's grace and redemption of his people. Ruth is mentioned alongside sort of the famous women of Israel's history, like the wives of Jacob in verse 11, and someone maybe surprising in verse 12. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar, born to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. The book of Ruth ends with the genealogy. Many of those names are the names, same names found in Matthew 1, which is where we began our study. It says, now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron Ram, Ram Aminadab, Aminadab Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. That's interesting because he just happened to marry a faithful Canaanite woman named Rahab. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz, Obed, Obed, Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now if you remember five weeks ago when we first started studying the genealogy, in Matthew 1, we said the reason they're important is because they're answering a question. It's a question that was raised at the very beginning of the Bible. So Adam and Eve sin, everything looks bleak and hopeless, they're cast out, but before they are, God makes a promise. He's like, one day, I'm going to send a son who fixes it. I'm going to send a son who just all of this brokenness, he restores. Sin's curse, he overturns. He's going to destroy evil and the evil one. And so these genealogies sort of become the ongoing record trying to help us answer the question, which is, well, who is he? Who's the son? Who's the one that all of human history is waiting for? And I said that the last name in the genealogy is really what we look to. And we, we get to the last name and we pause and we go like, okay, like is, is he the son? And which is why in Matthew's genealogy we finally come and it ends with Jesus. And we're like, oh, there he is. But in this genealogy, look at the last name. The last name is David. And so the 
readers would have said, well, oh, is this David the one who will fix everything? And the answer is no, but man, will he give us a picture of it. And so David, in many ways, pictures what the Messiah will be like. So David comes on the scene, and he's unexpected. He's from Bethlehem. He's a shepherd out in the field, and he comes, and there's a giant that no one can defeat, and God in his grace lets David defeat this giant. And he defeats enemy after enemy after enemy, and he brings his people into a land, and he gives them rest and blessing. He writes songs of comfort and praise. Like, David does all of this. He rules with justice. He rescues those who are afflicted. And so David does this in a limited time, for a limited time, with a limited group of people. And we're supposed to see in the very heights of those days a faint glimpse of what Jesus does for all people for all time. Like Jesus does this throughout all creation. And that this story of Ruth is part of a greater story of God's redemption and rest through Jesus Christ. It is through Ruth and her descendants that God brings salvation to all nations. Now you might think I'm crazy, but one of the classes I enjoyed in high school is physics. I only had my physics um, instructor, so I don't know how physics, if we did it correct or not. This is how I learned it, but we did a lot of figuring things out, and that's what I liked. It was active. Like, we'd have all these problems, and we'd have to figure them out, and sometimes it was sort of hands-on stuff. Sometimes it was, you know, just on the whiteboard or on paper, but like, we'd be given certain bits of information, and we have formulas, and we sort of just keep working on them until we put the right information into the right formula, and all of a sudden, like, there it is. that we got the results. And, and what we learned is if you get the right information, the right formula, you get the right answer, if you might have the right information, wrong formula, all of a sudden you have a wrong answer. A lot of people, in fact, everyone is looking for rest. Everyone is. But most people put the wrong formula together. Right? So they're hoping to find rest. And so they think, okay, rest, there's redemption. I need to redeem myself from my sins, from the things I've done wrong. I've got to fix those things. And so the way I do that is I try harder. I just I put effort into this thing or that thing, and that's going to take care of it. It's going to fix what I've broken, and now I'll find rest. And so the formula is this, that rest or effort leads to redemption, and that ends in rest. But it's a broken formula. I mean, there are some right elements in there, but it's a broken formula, and it never achieves what people are hoping for. And then I think what happens is a lot of Christians, they take that and they tweak it slightly. They take that same formula, they add a dash of grace, So it's like, well, my effort plus God's grace, I do my part, he does his part. This will lead to redemption for my sins, atoning for all the mistakes I make, and then the rest. And that doesn't work either because we learned that our effort, our effort not only does it not produce what we hope, but actually, if we trust it, hinders what we need. I think this is why so many people, and Christians included, are exhausted all the time whether it's physically or emotionally, spiritually. Because we think the more we do, the more we accomplish, the harder we try, the more rest we'll find. But but when has rest ever come from more effort? Like you will never find rest until you realize you can't produce it. That rest is a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace. It's not a reward for effort. 
that the only formula that actually works is this. God's grace brings redemption, which leads to rest. That's it. That's the formula. Ruth, it was not her effort. It was not her morality. Nothing led her to redemption and rest except when God in his grace redeemed her through Boaz's sacrifice. Listen, you will only find rest when you stop trying to atone for your own mistakes and you rely solely on God's grace redeeming you through the sacrifice of Jesus. Like you, you need to get this. We all need to get this. You can't fix your problem. Man, that would be that's like a summary of the Bible in one sentence. You can't fix your problem. You want to know who's tried? Like read through all of the Bible. Story after story of story. I'm gonna try this. Nope. I'm gonna try that. Nope. Wrong answer. Wrong formula. More effort. Nope. Like, you can't fix your problem. Here's the beauty. God can. And he has provided a way. So if you'll just stop trying to figure it out yourself, trying to fix it yourself only makes it worse. Redemption is not a personal achievement unlocked by hard work and effort. The redemption that's personified here in the story of Ruth and Boaz, it's the redemption we need It's not achieved by working harder or being smarter. It's about God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, not our effort. And so here's here's the beauty, ready? What happens when Ruth stops working? In fact, we'd have to assume she never returns to the field. She stops working. She asks Boaz for mercy, for grace, for favor. Boaz redeems her, marries her. What happens? They celebrate life. They celebrate life. Like this story ends on this sort of exciting note of celebration. Do you remember where it started? It started with a dead man and dead sons and a time of famine and the darkest time in Israel's history. And it ends with celebration. Why? Because of redemption. Like this is, I mean, if we get redemption in Christ, we get to celebrate life. We're free now. We're free from measuring up. We're free from figuring it out. We're free from having to do it all on our own. There is rest in Christ. So this Advent season, let's rejoice that our redemption is a gift of grace from the one who loves us and pursues us just like a husband pursued his bride. We pray with me. Father, we come to you as people who know deep down that we can't fix our problem, yet we, we keep trying to. Sometimes we try it through sort of spiritual means, and sometimes it's just through distraction and busyness and trying to succeed in life. And none of these things work. And so, God, would you in your grace help us to see that the only, the only way we find rest Rest and redemption is through the grace that comes in Jesus. We ask, then we trust, and then we celebrate the life, the future, the hope that you give us in your name. So help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.